The classic American dream consisted of three things, a suburban house, a pension, and a car. The internet era transformed each of those elements. People became more attracted to cities as our economy became services-oriented, companies shifted to the 401k and other retirement products, and our usage of cars has transformed with Uber and Lyft. But while the experience of cars has changed, purchasing cars has largely stayed the same. You go to a dealership, look at all the cars, find one you like, test drive it, haggle a little bit over the price, and then you drive home. It's a transaction almost everyone goes through, and it's why this week I was excited to chat with Makai Rorson, founder and CEO of Prodigy. Prodigy has reimagined the car buying experience and expanded the possibilities of automotive retail when software is introduced every step of the way. We talked about the digitization of car buying and what the ideal dealership would look like. Welcome, Makaya. It's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, excited to have you on the show today. Um, you know, we're going to talk Prodigy, a blend between what's going on in retail and automotive. But before we dive in too deeply, Makaya, just tell us a little bit more about your background and, and the journey to founding Prodigy. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I really grew up uh, loving two things, which are, are cars and business. And so at this point, um, I've been running companies for 13 years. I started my first company when I was 17. But for the longest time, I really, um, I would say my mindset around business was I run businesses to make money to buy cars. And so my first two businesses were totally unrelated to what I do now, um, both tech companies. Um, but I really just ran them to, to make profits and then buy cars. So at this point, I bought 16 cars. I bought nine cars while I was in college. I ran the car club uh, at college. Um, and then Prodigy kind of came about as just me wanting to combine my passions of business and cars. Uh, and, and that was sort of the, the high level thesis that, that turned into the business that we run today. But um, I just wanted to combine my two passions and, and cars and, and business seemed to be like a good place to do it. Talk a, talk a little bit more about, about Prodigy. And it's really interesting to hear you say that kind of... Um the passion kind of from the outset was with cars because uh, that's certainly a unique or an acquired interest. Where did you actually, before we jump into Prodigy, where did you develop that interest? Why, why cars? And I was, so I, if anything, I'll blame the Fast and Furious series. Um, you know, that came out, uh, I think probably when I was like 12 or 13. So my very moldable teenage brain was fascinated by Paul Walker and, um, yeah, I, I, I was just super into cars. Like even as a kid, I, I remember very vividly, I had this, this poster in my room of this white Lamborghini Countach. And I would just look at it every day and be like, I'm going to have one of these one day. Um, I super just loved everything about cars, like the way they looked, just like the, um, the engineering and, and the, just the amazing like engineering and detail that go into these, these nice cars. Um, and then when I was actually 14, I bought my first car before I could drive it and spend a year and a half fixing it up just to be able to, it didn't run. So I had to fix it up, uh, to run, um, when I was old enough to drive it. And then I went super deep down the, the rabbit hole, like through, through college, like I said, I bought nine cars. Um, I was racing them both, uh, mo mostly legally at the tracks, uh, in South Carolina where I grew up. Um, but like they were just always in the garage, tuning them, fixing them up. Um, just really passionate about the engineering and, and beauty of cars. And so, you know, I, I didn't come from the business side of cars. And I think a lot of people in 
in the the space that we play in it like just broadly speaking software for car dealerships that you know they're family-owned dealerships that they maybe they ran a dealership for a while um whereas i've never in my life worked in a dealership but um have bought a lot of cars so i've you know the the pain point that we solve at least which is making car buying better i've been through many many times more than most people go through their entire lifetime i think one of the interesting things especially when you think about the audience of folks that are listening to this podcast is you know kind of when you're canonically in tech and you think about you know cars and fascination with the engineering of cars etc you obviously think of tesla um Mm -hmm. you guys are you know you're building a business that's in the automotive space but you know capitalizing on a trend that i think is is really in parallel really interesting which is the digitization of of retail makaya talk a little bit more about you know, what is Prodigy, right? Explain the company, the state of the business today, and then we'll, you know, we'll dive in quite a bit deeply. Yeah, so um, Tesla's a great sort of um, point to bring up sort of in the formation of Prodigy. And it's not just Tesla. Like if you look now, um, there's a number of public companies that are selling cars online. Carvana being the big one, their $40 billion market cap. Shift, Voom, both IPO'd this year. Um, But if you were to rewind, five years ago, back when, you know, I was actually head of growth at VentureBeat at the time, my co-founder had just sold his company to Dropbox. Around that time, early 2015, really late 2014, um, when we were looking at the data, there was a lot of data just starting to emerge that, you know, at a macro level, retail was was going digital. You know, we saw Amazon and other companies um, just continuing to take more and more of the retail market share. But then specifically for cars, there was a lot of data that was starting to say, hey, you know, car buying's basically been this same terrible experience for a hundred years. And that's about to change. There's going to be um, a consumer shift. And it was already starting to happen where consumers are not only doing more online, but maybe even buying cars online, which at the time was crazy. Um, and when they do go into the dealership, there's a good chance they'll, well, they'll have done a lot online. They may go into the dealership to buy. They may just go into test drive and then want to go home and ultimately buy the car and have it delivered. Um, and so there was a lot of data just coming out that said car buying is about to like fundamentally change. And this is all pre-COVID and everything else, but there, there, you couldn't look at the data and ignore it. Like it was compelling to say this is in the U.S. about $1.3 trillion of cars sold every year. And that's about to be meaningfully different in the way it's happened, the way it happens in the next five years. Um, and so there were really a couple different paths you could go with that. Tesla said, hey, let's look at this data and let's sell cars online. Let's make that a big you know, strategy for us. Carvana said, let's build our own dealerships and sell cars online using our own proprietary software. Prodigy um, was founded sort of on the same thesis, but we said, listen, Carvana, Tesla, all these companies can do that. But the the way that the U.S. is set up, dealerships still run the show when it comes to cars. Like they have the infrastructure, they have the laws, they have the ability to um, sell and service cars very effectively. It's what they've been doing and and they're all over the U.S. So what if you could take these dealerships that, you know, run on Stone Age technology and actually get them up to speed to be able to maybe compete against these incumbents or these new players like Tesla, Carvana that are, are going to be offering a better customer experience. And so that was sort of the approach that Prodigy took, which is one, our, our thesis is really how can we build software that 
allows car buyers to buy cars the way they want to buy. So we don't really take a, you have to buy online or you have to buy in-store approach. We just want to make the, the experience for the car buyer extremely seamless um, and allow them to do the steps the way they want to. So maybe they want to start online and finish in store. Maybe they want to start in store and finish online. But we want it to be the backbone that powered that digital experience for car dealerships. And so that was the thesis that we started the company. And now, uh, five years later, we sell a little over a billion dollars of cars every month through our platform. So um, I'll say it's worked out so far. And let's say, let's set the stage for what's going on in dealers uh, in general, right? Because I think, and I like the way you just framed that, which is, I think outside in one of the one of the pieces that most folks don't know, if you if you don't know the automotive space, is just how integral the dealer is in terms of controlling, you know, the customer experience. I think pre-COVID, you know, dealers were already operating in an environment that was dramatically changing, um, not just to the consumer behavior point, I think you were mentioning, Makai, but also, you know, average dealership operating profits were down materially and, and dealer sentiment, you know, has continued to trend negative. Talk to us a little bit more just about the economics of a dealership, you know, where do you typically make money? Where do you not make money? What's going on? How is that shifting? You know, and why that kind of falls into the fold, you know, of what Prodigy is doing? Yeah, so dealerships in general um, run fairly thin and lean operations. Like if, if a dealership was trying to raise VC funding, they'd get kicked out immediately. You're talking like 3% margins generally on cars. Um, if they're lucky, uh, honestly, a lot of times you've seen like 2% or, or 2.5%. And so for um, when you think about dealerships, you generally think about, you know, businesses that sell cars. And that's absolutely true. But the reality is most of the money that they make comes from you being a, um, a loyalist to that dealership. So that, you know, the service runs at 40% margins. Um, whereas selling cars, a lot of times they're, on, at least on the, the, the quote unquote front end, which is the markup of the vehicle, they're often losing money just to sell you that car. They will take a loss on the markup of the vehicle in the hopes that you will buy, you know, the extended warranty package, the loan from the dealership, and then also come back for service. And so the dealership business has really shifted um, from say 20 years ago where you could make, you know, you could mark up the car $5,000 and that's your, your huge payday. Um, with the advance of just the internet, uh, you know, into the car business in general, autotradercars.com, you can now shop across dealerships, um, pricing just across the, the, the internet and um, across your whatever radius you want to instantly. And you can see how much would this Honda Civic cost within the 500 miles of me and see all the prices. Um, and then things like True Car, Kelly Blue Book, there's just the buyer is so informed um, and it's kind of a funny situation. Like I'm talking to you on my new 16 inch MacBook Pro that I actually picked up two months ago. And I know Apple made a killing on me when I bought this and I don't really care because Apple is delivering a great experience. Um, but I think because of some of the missteps of the dealerships in the past, um, consumers really don't like it if dealerships make money on cars. And so you know, they continue to get sort of squeezed by information and by consumer um, pressure to just lose money on cars just to try to win you over as a lifelong customer, basically. And how are, what are the different sources of, of 
kind of traditional profit and such for the dealer, right? Let's set that baseline. And I think from my understanding outside in, it's obviously you know, vehicle sales, but then there's you know parts, financing, insurance, there's kind of all those other different elements. It, it feels like from a macro perspective with additional price transparency um, you know, on the dealer side, that's, that's just gonna compress the margins further and further on selling the cars. Are dealers, is, is it that they're looking to all those kind of aftermarkets or other parts to, to shore up that margin pressure or how, how are dealers thinking about it today in terms of composition of their business? Yeah, so um, the, 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 what we call the front end of the vehicle, which is the, the markup. So the way to calculate front end is just um, the price the dealership paid and then the gap between that and what the customer pays, that's, that's known as the front end of the vehicle. That has, for new cars, it's gone. Like I would say we have numerous dealerships that I know on our platform that are running an average of negative 300 or negative $500 on their front end on average. So like on average, they're losing hundreds of dollars with every car they sell on the quote unquote markup of the vehicle. Um, used cars is a little bit different. Used cars, there's like, if, if I'm looking at a 2021 blue Honda Civic, every dealership's going to sell me the exact same 2021 blue Honda Civic. So I don't have as much uh, flexibility to mark that vehicle up. Whereas if you want to buy a 19, I don't know, 1969 Mustang, um, and, and you want this color and this mileage, like there may be only one or two of those that really match your needs. So I have a lot more ability as a dealership to mark up that vehicle. But generally speaking, the front end is just gone. Like dealerships really don't rely on it or um, think about it much. They, they really try to make up for that in, in two broad buckets. Uh, the first is which is called the back end. So the back end consists of the loan. So dealerships actually make money on the loan when you uh, finance the vehicle through the dealership. The dealership is still actually financing it through a bank, like say, you know, Ally or Wells Fargo or something, but Ally and Wells Fargo are paying the dealership for that loan. And that, and that payout varies depending on, you know, credit score, price of the vehicle and things like that. But, but the dealership's going to make some money on that generally. Um, And then there's, parts and accessories. These are generally parts and accessories that are sold at the vehicle purchase. So would you like to get the roof rack installed? Would you like to tint your windows? You know, all of these have um, a parts and labor component. So they're making money on the markup of the part, just like their retail margin. And then also you're getting labor for that roof rack installed. So the dealership's making some labor profit there. Um, And then the third piece would be generally speaking, what we call protection plans. And protection plans are, they can be like the tire protection, they can be your extended warranty for your drivetrain, they can be gap insurance. So if you crash your car and you you owe more than it's worth, gap insurance covers you. All of these different things, um, the dealership's making profit on that. And, And the extended warranty or the protection plans in general, that really came about, um, in a big way in 2008, you know, when the, when the economy crashed and dealerships started shutting down left and right, that was when you really saw the front ends, the front end profit just sort of fall out from underneath the dealership. And so if you were to go back like 20 years, there wasn't as much of an emphasis on selling extended warranties and um, gap insurance and things like that. 
but the the market just changed fundamentally for dealerships in 2008. And so since then, they've relied a lot more on protection plans uh, to make profit on the vehicle since they're losing on the front end. Um, and then the final piece, which is sort of this really fascinating, um, weird incentive that the dealerships operate under is they get kickbacks, you know, we're talking about franchise dealerships generally. So a franchise dealership would be a Toyota dealership or a Honda dealership, someone who's selling new cars, they will get kickbacks from the manufacturer based on hitting certain goals. And those goals can be total volume. So we need you to sell a hundred Toyotas this month. It can be um, a certain loan volume. So we need you to do 30 with Toyota finance. I'm just gonna use Toyota as an example. Um, it can be now as um, customer experience is becoming more uh, important, it can be actually what's called CSI, customer satisfaction index. So you need to average a 9.5 out of 10 for customer satisfaction surveys. And then we'll give you this bonus. There's all different incentives that the dealerships um, have from the OEMs. But at the end of the day, the OEMs are very, um, they're, they're very, they're very uh, black and white on this. So if, if your quote is 100 cars and you sell 99, you get no OEM kickback. You sell 101, no problem. 100, no problem. But if you miss it by one, you don't get that kickback. And a lot of dealerships actually operate in ways where they will lose money on every car sold um, to try to get that OEM kickback. And if they make the OEM kickback for the month, the dealership's profitable. And if not, the dealership can um, miss that entire check and it just swings the whole dealership red for the month. So for some dealerships, that OEM kickback is, is their entire profit center and they actually just lose money on the rest of the business. Um, it's a really fascinating just sort of relationship with the OEM and the dealership that way. So if you're starting a dealership from first principles, right, what, what's top of mind for you? How are you constructing your dealership? And, and I think about that, Makai, in, in kind of two parts, right? There's the front end kind of customer facing experience. And then, you know, there's the back end operationally. Let's, let's start with the front end, right? But I, I'd love to hear how you think about, you know, it's 2020, I'm setting up a dealer from the ground up, no constraints, how might I do it? Yeah, well, what's really cool for us is um, we are, even as a small company, we're like 50 people now, um, we're known in the, the category as being sort of one of the, the real innovators when it comes to auto retail. Um, and so we, we get to work with many of the most innovative dealership groups in the country who are thinking about this question a lot. Um, so I can sort of give you an answer that, um, to be fair, is, is what I've also learned from very successful dealerships that are, that are literally even, you know, through COVID opening new dealerships now, and they're trying out different business models. So one of the things that dealerships, um, are really, I would say reconsidering is what is the purpose of the showroom? So the showroom historically was, um, you know, designed for a wow factor, of course, but it also was designed to hold massive lots of inventory and show all these different vehicles because there was no way to show you the car if you weren't on the lot. Like dealerships didn't have websites when most dealership lots were designed. They didn't have video chat and things like that. Um, and these lots are very expensive, like land is not cheap and dealerships can't generally build 
too far out in the country. They want to be close to major highways, close to shopping areas. So it's, it's expensive land. Um, and, and that made sense when the average uh, customer that bought a car would visit six dealerships. So, you know, you were on sort of a dealership shopping tour and, you know, the really successful dealerships, we've seen some crazy things like they have massage rooms in there and they have uh, all you can eat buffets and cafes, like really luxury, like come hang out. We'll win you over on your dealership tour. These days, customers don't really do dealership tours. The average customer visits 1.1 dealerships before buying a car. And actually the majority just visit one dealership. So I would say first things first, how do I not spend, you know, 50, $100 million on my, on my lot? How do I not buy this massive lot and build this just mega dealership with, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cars. We've seen dealerships now um, trying to have more about customer experience and less about just mass. So um, what I mean is you have really almost like an Apple store. Like that's kind of like the feel that we've seen where um, it's just, you, you, it's, it's like an experience when you walk in, they have a couple models, they show it off, um, they greet you that, you know, they make you a coffee. It's, it's really friendly. Um, and that's, if you go in the dealership, a lot of these dealerships, what they're doing instead is they're, they're saying, well, let's just deliver the test drive. We'll bring it to you. Like we'll bring it to your work. We'll bring it to your house. Um, because you can run the numbers and you can actually save just on your, your floor plan cost. Um, and, and, and pay for other parks for customers. So I, in general, I'm thinking if I'm a dealership owner, I'm going to make a smaller lot that is really designed for the customer that's not um, doing everything in person. They're doing a lot online. Um, and I'm going to use my, my real estate to also set up really good workstations for dealing with online shoppers, which these days we almost say there is no such thing as an online versus an in-store customer. They're just car buyers and, and they're really doing both. Um, so I'm going to have, you know, my, my salespeople with really nice computers where they can video chat and live chat in privacy with people and really give them a great online experience. Um, and then I'm really going to think through how do I staff my dealership would probably be the second thing. And the trend that we're seeing is um, the old school model was you had a, commissioned salesperson, a commissioned sales manager, and a commissioned finance manager on every deal. And all of them are sort of just trying to, um, at least from the customer perception, they would say they're there to grind and beat me up to get their commission. And all three of them sort of care about different things. So they may be grinding you in different ways. And, and the finance manager is typically considered to be the most painful part of the process. You go in this like dark room in the back and deal with this person. Um, so for me, if, if I'm doing this, I'm going to, one, make sure that the person that you talk with has no commission incentive on how much you pay for the car or which car you buy. You know, I, and we see these in different ways. You call them car enthusiasts or car experts, but a lot of progressive dealerships are, are getting friendly, like millennials that just want to greet you and, and welcome you to the dealership and show you around. And, and there's no pressure because they're just there to give you a great customer experience. Um, so I'm going to definitely go with that model. And then the, the second aspect is I'll probably have a, like a buying specialist and the buying specialist would be, um, not designed to again, grind you, but designed to educate you. 
why would you want to finance versus lease? Why is gap insurance important? Um, and I'll make sure that the buying specialist can do everything. So I'm not going to have you talk to three people, but maybe two people. And, and they're really working as a team. Someone who's super, um, and this is also because I'm, I'm, I'm answering this from a dealer perspective. My, my car enthusiast or car expert will be a lower salaried person that um, is just super friendly, but may, may not be super knowledgeable on the, the very nuances of, you know, what is a balloon payment? How does it work? And things like that. And then I'll have a buying expert that's just there to help you walk through how can you afford this car? What, what makes sense for you? Um, and, and that's the whole experience. So I would just do that. Um, and then ideally the buying expert just checks you out and you leave. You don't have to go into um, a third person. It's, it's very streamlined. And, and I would definitely um, make sure that the whole thing is, there should be no paper involved. It's all digital. That's another really important thing. It also helps with compliance to have it digital, um, but it just, the customers, they, they feel more in control when they're doing it digitally. So I'm biased. We sell a digital checkout process, but there's other companies that do that. And I would just be making sure that every step of the process can be done digitally. It sounds like it's a mix of basically looking at every part of the process and distilling where can there be better customer experience or service experience, right? Whether that's a function of kind of a, a handholding, a white glove touch, um, efficiency, right? Incentive alignment, and then an underpinning of kind of digitization in, in every element of, of the process itself. One of the things, Makaya, as you were talking, that kind of came to my mind especially this idea of what, what you started out talking about, which was, you know, take the prototypical dealership, right? And massive amount of land, right? Hundreds and hundreds of cars kind of all over the place and kind of transform it in the way you were talking to. The thing that actually came to my mind was, you know, that's exactly what cloud kitchens are doing, right? In, in the food space. Does that analogy resonate with you? Um, and if so, how would you, how would you kind of draw the parallels or, or differences to that analogy? Yeah, no, that that does resonate with me. I think the the only difference is, you know, and I'm, I'm not a cloud kitchen expert, but my understanding is cloud kitchens um, are just essentially delivery hubs. So you don't go into the cloud kitchen as a customer ever. You only get it delivered. Um, whereas you kind of have a hybrid approach here where you need to be able to still greet customers and give them that amazing experience because a lot of them still do want to go into the dealership. but um, you don't need to show them 45 of the same white Honda Civic. Like you can have one white Honda Civic on the lot and have backup Honda Civics in a cheaper location that you can deliver to them if need be. Um, but, the, but the concept of maybe we don't need this massive floor plan because people are interacting with our business differently, absolutely parallel with, with Cloud Kitchens and what's happening in dealerships today. It's really interesting because when you think about it kind of from the basis in which you're you're stating it, it, it kind of spells the obvious, right? Which is like what what is the what is the rationale? What what has been the historic rationale of having a hundred white Honda Civics <laughs> on a lot? Is it has it been like that's how, you know, because dealers are all part of dealer networks, right? Is it because that's how the manufacturers thought of just locationally placing their inventory? Or what what had what was the original rationale for for that kind of construct? Well, I think it's it's a good question. If I'm being honest, I don't have, um, it, it's almost like so illogical that I don't have a logical answer on why it was done historically or why it continues to happen. Um, but a lot of it is, 
you know, small differences in, in trim may, may lead you to have some, a number of different cars, but a lot of, a lot of dealerships will have multiple of the same car. Um, there wasn't a lot of sophisticated data in buying in, in the old, uh, well, I, I say the old days, but like dealerships still run on such unsophisticated software that you're still seeing this at play today. Um, but they weren't, they weren't super sophisticated in buying necessarily what's selling. And um, it's an interesting relationship between the OEMs and the dealerships. I think this is something that people don't necessarily understand about dealerships that may shed some light on this topic. OEMs have one customer and it's actually the dealership. Um, And so the dealership is beholden to the OEM because they have to comply with their you know, franchise standards. They have to get all their cars from the, from the OEM. But the OEM also um, sells their cars to the dealership. So the dealership is not getting these for free from the OEM. They're, they're actually buying them and, and they, they finance them. They, the dealerships get loans on the cars that they buy from the OEM. So the OEM's job is to, it's sort of twofold. At, at the core level, the OEM wants to sell as many cars to the dealership as possible. So the OEM is making money, but then the OEM also has to um, keep the dealership afloat, if you will, because if they sell so many cars, their dealerships just go out of business, then their customers go out of business and then they can't sell them more cars. So you kind of have an interesting dynamic with the dealership. The, the OEM wants the dealership to be buying as many cars from them as possible they wouldn't like a necessarily um, just flat out on demand model where you only like if the, if the OEM in a magical world could deliver the car in five minutes from their warehouses. So the OE for the dealership doesn't have to buy any cars. The, the dealerships, the OEMs wouldn't like that as much because the dealerships are buying their cars in bulk and sort of um, insulating the OEMs a little bit from any sort of um, market, ups and downs, not, not entirely, but the, the OEMs have a more steady buying source because the dealerships are buying their cars. Yep. How do you think about the back end side? So we talked about kind of front end and customer experience. We started touching a little bit into the back end side in terms of, you know, even kind of signature process, compliance, et cetera. How would you think about constructing a dealership from the back end, you know, from a first principles basis? So I would really you can't ignore as a dealership the back end profits. But I think, so if you look at Carvana, actually Carvana is a good example. Carvana makes more money on the back end than almost any dealership in the country. Like it's almost double what most dealerships make. And yet customers are happy about it. Like nobody is in um, throwing their arms up in rage about Carvana making all this profit. But if the dealership makes half that profit, people get really pissed off. Going back to, again, my, my Mac analogy, which I just, I think about a lot. Like I, I, I have an iPhone 12 next to me. I have a Mac magic mouse. Like I'm, I'm Mac everything. And I know Mac or Apple is just making a killing on the ghost margins of these products. But I don't really mind that much because um, they've made buying them so delightful and they've made using them so delightful. And so if I'm working on backend, I'm going to go back to customer experience and, you know, how can I get away from the sort of, let me shove this down your throat approach that 
car buyers expect when it comes to the back end. You have to buy this, you, you need this, like all this fear mongering. How can I just sit down and educate them? Because the reality is, you know, I I want my drivetrain to be insured. I want I want my windows to be tinted. Like I want these things for my car, but the format it's presented in is counterproductive. And we've actually seen this just in our dealerships, the dealerships that we work with. Um, you know, when we started the company, we never in a million years thought that profits would go up by making the process more customer friendly. We hoped that at worst they would stay the same and the customers would be happier and they would buy more often. But actually when customers buy through Prodigy at a dealership that we work with, both the front end and the back end go up and it's about $600, which for a dealership, you know, average profit might be $1,500. So you're talking like a 30% lift in overall margins just because the process is more transparent and um, more customer friendly. It's when customers feel beat up and jerked around and that they're being misled that they sort of put their defenses up and then they won't buy anything from the dealership. Like, you know, in sales, like SaaS business sales, they always say the number one um, thing you have to establish in in a sale is trust. And I, I don't know that I would change the products being sold if I'm setting up a dealership, but I'd absolutely make sure that trust is the most important component. So I'm really, again, focused on educating the customers, making it, I think there's a level of transparency that matters and a level of transparency that that is too far. Like Apple, just going back to this analogy, doesn't list on the the sticker when I buy my Apple, what their margins are and how much they paid for the aluminum shell and things like that. But I know what I'm going to pay. And when I show up at the dealer, I show up at the Apple store, surprise, my price is the same. Like these little small things that can break consumer trust or build it um, add up to real profits. So I'm just going to focus on transparency, consistency, and a real educational process for the back end while selling the exact same products the dealership does today. What's been the challenge for, you know, dealers are your end customer, right? So it, it, yep. it kind of provides an interesting parallel as well, which is, you know, digitization is moving customer sentiment in one direction. There's only increased price transparency. There's only a higher bar for, you know, how you purchase items, right? Because we're used to purchasing things on Amazon or Instacart or whatever it is every single day, right? Yep. And so you kind of have dealers in this in this mix. I imagine that there's dealers that you you know, you work with that are totally on board with recognition of this trend and are saying, hey, how do we get ahead of this as quickly as possible? And then I imagine there's a cohort of dealers that either are set in their ways or it's, it's more challenging to get them to adopt technology, et cetera. What's the biggest pushback, you know, you get from dealers, especially, you know, from folks that are getting, you know, that have such thin margins, you know, in, in my mind, in if you're operating a low margin business, I mean, prototypically the thing that you're always interested in is either how do you increase your volume, right? So you have your, you have higher absolute dollars or you increase your percentage. There's really only two levers, right? From, from how you get more dollars coming in the door. So what's the biggest pushback that you prototypically get from dealers? Yeah. Um, well, I'll just say one thing, which is like, I guess important for anyone who's, who's listening and thinking about starting companies um, early on, like you said, some dealerships are more open to change and open to being 
tech savvy or customer friendly and, and some are not. And I'll say early on, we were, we were just, you know, a startup. So we were desperate for anyone. So we would, we would take the dealerships that didn't want to be customer friendly. And we'd say, yeah, you know, we can, yeah, we can hide that. Maybe we can show, make the, um, you know, things be a little more less transparent on the screen and things like that. Um, Cause we just wanted customers and I'll, and I'll say, as we've sort of, um, as I've matured as a leader and as the company's matured and sort of found its voice, we've learned to really stand for what we believe in. And so our, our, our mission is to build the world's best car buying experience. And we make it really clear to our dealers that that's what we do. And we also make it really um, clear to them that if that's not what they want to do, like they probably shouldn't buy our software because we're not going to let them do anything less. Like we're not going to let them be, misleading or shady or anything. I mean, it's not to say that like dealerships are like lining up to do that, but um, just for us, like we actually want to um, live up to our own values. And, and that means also working with customers that live up to our values. So we really focus on that. Um, having said that, a lot of dealerships are, um, so dealerships also have an interesting structure it's one that i haven't really seen in other businesses although i'm sure it exists dealerships are basically have two key people they have the owner of the dealership um, and then they have the general manager the owner of the dealership is usually 99 percent of the time in the dealership maybe like five times a year like they're off in the cayman islands collecting paychecks from their dealerships and their other businesses like they're they're extremely most of the time hands-off owners and they've really given the um the baton to the gm and the gm runs the show and and the gm is responsible for all um operations profits budget decisions you know often almost everything the challenge with that is while the GM runs the show, the GM is beholden to keeping profits up and, and keeping things running smoothly while the owner is, is, you know, sort of out of the picture, but still the, the financial holder of the operation. And um, the reason that presents a challenge is dealerships, whether or not they will, um, they will, tell you to, to their face, I'll tell you, they are still printing money. Like dealerships are just good businesses. Um, and so we have a product that can make their lives better, that can help them um, print even more money and give their customers a great experience. But if you're the GM, you're making a pretty big check. Your owner is probably pretty happy because if the owner is not, they fire GMs really quickly. Um, and all those factors combined can make it a little scary to adopt something like Prodigy because we're not a tip your toes in delivering a better customer experience type product. We're really going to come in and say, hey, all that stuff you're doing online, like let's completely change it. Let's make it way better. That the way you handle customers in store, let's have every single one of them go through Prodigy. Um, and we really do this like with our dealerships, they really switch every sale they do to being powered by Prodigy. And so the biggest 
objection I would say is the GMs are like, Hey, I totally get it. I want this for my dealership, but this, this scares me. Like this sounds like a lot of work. Um, and I'm still making a lot of money. So, and, and I know if I screw that up, the, the owner's going to kick me out in a heartbeat. Like they're just very cutthroat around, around letting go of GMs. Um, and so there's a, there's a big sort of just lift that is um, quite scary to make as a business owner. The same way that like, if you were to tell me, you know, we're switching um, one of our departments, we're going to switch the way they do everything. Like it's, it's very scary as a business owner and you have to have enough pain built up to make those switches. COVID's certainly driven a lot of pain for dealerships where they're, they're seeing their customers um, not able to buy unless they adopt technology like this. Um, but you, you generally, the, the biggest by far 60, I think it's like 63% of our, our demos that we do that don't buy, don't buy because they do nothing. They're like, we want it, we get it, but it's just a lot right now. Makai, I'm curious as we as we round out the conversation, we we talked a little bit about kind of you were building a dealership from first principles. You know, how might you think about it? Right, what are the areas of focus you would think about on the front end, on the back end, or so? Now, how, how much the surface area of the dealership or the car buying experience do you think can become digitally native, and and not by a you know not by a trend of hey, what's going to happen in the next two years, five years, et cetera? But again, kind of if, if we're taking that first principle as basis, and, and we've taken that as a thread throughout this discussion. How much of the experience do you think can be, you know, digitally native? I, I have to imagine from a customer perspective, you know, if I'm buying a, a banana on Instacart, a, a book on Amazon, et cetera, it's still a low dollar purchase. You know, if it's, you know, if it's not great, whatever, not a big deal. If I'm buying a $15,000 car, $20,000 car, you know, 30, 40, it's a little bit different. There's obviously also kind of macroeconomic things like ride sharing, et cetera, that come into play. But how much of the of the car buying experience itself do you think, you know, how much of the surface area of that do you think can just be purely digitally native? Well, I would say there's there's two components, like how much can be digitally native and how much of the average consumer's purchase actually will be digitally native. Um, we're at the point today where it can be 100% digital. So you can buy a car completely online have it delivered to your house. You never step foot into a dealership. You never test drive it. Um, and we're doing that, like I said, we, we will sell hundreds of cars um, probably during our conversation today in a completely digital native way um, with no human interaction. We, you know, our platform supports video chat and live chat. So you can really do it all totally digitally. But the buying a car is not just a utilitarian purchase. Like for, for mo many people, myself included as a huge car guy, um, buying a car is a sense of identity. Like, you know, we drive, I drive a Prius, so I'm really eco-friendly and I'm representing my identity through the car. Or, you know, I drive an Audi and so I'm, I'm about luxury and, and speed or, you know, we, we attach so much of who we are as, as people to our cars. And I think that attachment is, is a little hard to do digitally. Like there's something about just, you know, the dealerships say you've got to feel the wheel to close the deal and these sort of like catchphrases. Um, but it, it's true. 
it's an emotional experience. It's not just a utilitarian experience. And to, to really get that emotion, there's something special about being behind the wheel of a car. There's something special about going on the test drive and just checking it out. So I'll say, and right now, the, the industry is not there. Like I would say 99% of dealerships cannot sell you a car completely online if you want to as a, if you want to buy that way as a customer. Like they just don't have the technology. Um, they should call us. We can get them there, but they're just not there. With, within five years, I would say 95% of dealerships probably will be able to do that. Like for sure, we'll be able to deliver the full end-to-end customer experience online. The big question is, will customers actually do end-to-end online? Um, I, I'll, I'll go on record and say, I believe that in the next five years, the majority of cars will still not be sold online. I think you'll see maybe 20 to 25%, maybe at most, fully sold online. And mind you, that's like $300 billion. So it's, it's fine if $300 billion of cars goes online. Like that's a lot of volume. But I think the majority of car sales will continue to be a hybrid omni-channel approach, which is what our platform frankly does best, where you can start online but finish in store or start in store and finish online. You know, for customers today, that's how they think about car buying. They don't think about being online or in-store buyers it's just native to um, car buyers to go between online and in-store. The average customer even today goes between online and in-store during their buying process four times before they buy the car. Um, and I think that's going to be more the future before we go like 100% fully digital for every car sale or fully online, if you will. Okay, it's funny. You know, the final question I typically like to ask our guests is, you know, what's one thing you believe in of the future of your space, right? So in this case, automotive retail, that others likely wouldn't agree with you on. And it sounds like it's actually that that pretty contrarian take, um, which is that, you know, the vast majority of car buying won't be actually, you know, online or so in the coming future, which is which is precisely actually not the not the answer I would have expected, right? Out of somebody basically selling a solution that enables right more kind of digital purchasing or so is that is that the right takeaway or is there is there something else you know even bigger kind of about the space that you believe in that others wouldn't agree with you on i'll i'll give you another one but first off yes you know i and i love sort of educating dealers around this because i and me and my co-founder founded this company on the belief that car sales would be majority online i went and raised a million bucks on sandhill road from um, angels that believed in us and investors that believed in us to deliver online car sales. And that was our vision. And we learned just firsthand from, um, from working with dealerships that that's just not a future that the data, when you actually like are in the dealership and working with consumer supports, there will be a few, I, I do believe a future where maybe 90% start online, but there's always going to be this in-store component. And so um, the way we've actually structured our company, we spend about half of our engineering resources building the in-store experience as well. And it goes on an iPad. It's super seamless. And so we're really focused on that. Um, and that was a tough pill for us to swallow as a company because we'd gone out and raised a million dollars to do online sales. We'd built a team around it. Um, and when we realized that was wrong, we had to actually do massive layoffs. And we were ma- massive for our side. We were eight people. We went down to three 
overnight. And as an early stage startup, that was really scary. Um, so I, I definitely believe that because we've lived it firsthand. Um, the other thing that I think maybe is contrary, and if you spend um, a little bit too much of your time in downtown San Francisco, is that car ownership is going away or that dealerships are going away. Um, and I just, I've never seen any data that supports this. And if you look at the smartest investors on, on the planet, like Warren Buffett, George Soros, they're buying up brick and mortar dealerships left and right. Um, we work with Berkshire Hathaway Automotive um, and they stopped publishing numbers. So we can't see how many dealerships they actually own. Um, but by my estimates, they probably are the third largest holder of brick and mortar dealerships in the US. So if Warren thinks dealerships are sticking around, like that's good enough for me. That's awesome. Well, Makai, this is this is a, a really fun conversation, and, and thanks for educating me on on so much more so on, on dealerships. It's always interesting to hear um, you know the blend of a a software business that's taking on kind of two two trends and two challenges at the same time. One of which is kind of digitization of of automotive, which we know lags quite quite materially, and then of course you know piggybacking off of a uh, off of this retailing you know auto, uh, retailing digitization trend. So it was a ton of fun, um, you know, really looking forward to continuing to watch the company grow. And, and thanks again for making the time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was awesome.